If you'll take your Bibles and join me in John's Gospel, chapter 1, as we start a new book study together. Uh, Remember, just by way of introduction, that each of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell a story about Jesus from a slightly different angle. Now, none of it contradicts, all of it complements, but that's the beauty of having four different Gospels, because we can get different angles to the story about Jesus. Um, The early church fathers assigned a symbol. This isn't something that here at Cornerstone we invented. The early church fathers selected a symbol that um, would identify the major theme of each of the four Gospels. And they chose three animals and one unfaced uh, human being. And so we've been using those themes as the graphic design through the study of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and now John. And so just as a reminder, here's, here are those themes. Again, we didn't come up with this. This is just our graphics team that made kind of a modern version of what the early church fathers assigned to the Gospels. Matthew is symbolized by a lion because Matthew emphasized Jesus as Messiah King. Uh, and then Mark is, is uh, symbolized by an ox because Mark's gospel uh, emphasizes Jesus as the lowly servant, the one who came to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke's uh, gospel emphasized the humanity of Jesus. Uh, his main theme was son of man. And so this, a faceless man was the symbol, is the symbol of the gospel of Luke. And now we come to the gospel of John. John emphasizes Jesus as the son of God. He, he emphasizes the divinity and the, the deity of Jesus. And so an eagle is the symbol for the gospel of John, uh, an eagle who soars in the heavens and comes down to earth. And so um, we've adopted those four ancient symbols Uh, for our graphics through our study of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. By the way, these four different symbols correspond exactly to the four faces of the cherubim in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 10. Cherubim are angelic beings. Uh, We have a head ourselves, humanly speaking, but our face is only on one side of the head. But the cherubim, the Bible says in Ezekiel 1.10, have four faces, one on each side of their head. And the four faces are the face of a lion, the face of an ox, the face of a man, and the face of an eagle. So this isn't just some hyped up symbolism. These are actually drawn from what the Bible teaches in Ezekiel 1 verse 10 on the four faces uh, of, of the cherubim. So I'm going to give an overview of the Gospel of John real quickly before I read from chapter 1, just to give you a background. This is the last of the Gospels to be written. Uh, It was written by the Apostle John. The year was sometime around 85 to 90 A.D. John is his anglicized name. His Hebrew given name was Yohanan. Yohanan translates God is gracious. If you're named John, that's a strong and biblical name. God is gracious. Uh, John was the oldest and last surviving eyewitness of Jesus among the apostles. He was the last to be martyred. And John uniquely uh, mentions the least miracles that Jesus performs. He only mentions eight. But of the eight that John mentions, six are found only in the Gospel of John. The emphasis of his book is on the deity of Jesus Christ, and the purpose of his book he spells out for us in John 20, verse 31, and this is what it says. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
And so John develops right out of the gate here in chapter 1, he develops this, the whole premise on the identity and deity of Jesus. So we're going to look at five of those things taken right here from chapter 1. I'm going to read the first 17 verses if you'll follow along in your Bibles. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were through him, and without him, or all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from, John who, uh, from God whose name was John. Now, this is the Apostle John, but he's referring to John the Baptist, not himself. Verse 7. This man, John the Baptist, came for a witness to bear witness of the light of Jesus, that all through him might believe. He, John the Baptist, was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, that's Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Let's pause there and pray. God, it's good to be in your house. We pray now as we look into your word and we open our Bibles to the Gospel of John that you'll make it come alive to our hearts today. And we thank you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. You may not be aware of this, but for many years I've actually had a, a radio program broadcast in 27 states and the District of Columbia. It's called Cornerstone Connection. It, it's taken right from our Sunday services or our Wednesday night services. They edit it, they produce it, and then it's put out across the, the country on different radio stations. I got a, an email from a listener in Maryland this week, and it fit perfectly with what our topic is here from the Gospel of John. So I'm going to read a little bit of this email that I received from a listener in Maryland. Uh, and before I read it, though, I need to explain a term that he uses in the email. And the term is Arianism. Arianism. Now, Arianism is the view. It's a false view. But Arianism is the view that Jesus is not God, but that Jesus was created by God as a separate being who possessed some divine attributes, but who was not himself divine. Again, it is a false doctrine that's been around actually since the 4th century AD, and it has been denounced by various early church councils as completely unbiblical, because it is. Nevertheless, it still circulates in various forms today, and you're going to recognize it as I read this email. So listen to, I'm just going to read part of it. This is what it said. Dear Pastor Hamrick, I heard your broadcast here in Maryland today. I listened closely to your characterization of Mormonism as Arianist. 
because LDS doctrine, Latter-day Saint doctrine, does not consider Christ to be both holy God and holy man. I am a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. While I am certain that we are probably going to differ on other points of doctrine, perhaps many, I feel that on this point you haven't accurately represented the views of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on this particular point. He says, it is true that we believe that God the Eternal Father and His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, are separate and distinct individuals. Now, he goes on in the rest of his email to outline a few other doctrines, uh, which actually several of them I agree with. Uh, For example, he mentioned that Jesus came to do the will of the Father. I agree. He mentioned Jesus lived a sinless life. I would agree. He mentioned Jesus died to atone for our sins. I would agree. It was a very respectful email, and he ended it very cordially. He said this at the end, quote, If I am in need of correction on these points, I would greatly appreciate the scriptural underpinnings of your spiritual understanding to point out my errors, end quote. So, I want to respond with the same respectful tone uh, because it fits right within our Bible study today. The Gospel of John is um, probably the most, but certainly at least one of the the most um, important books in the Bible as it relates to helping us understand who Jesus is. John takes great pain to, especially in the first chapter, to explain clearly from different angles and different expressions exactly who Jesus is. And even though the man who sent me this letter uh, says that I had mischaracterized the Mormon church's doctrine as Arianist, he was listening to some previous teaching that aired. I don't, I don't even know which teaching it was, but I'm sure I've made that statement over 30 years or so. Um, and even though he, he says that I mischaracterized the Mormon church's doctrine as Arianist, again, the belief that Jesus is not God, he actually agrees with me in the same sentence, that that is, in fact, what they believe. Because in the email, again, he said, I listen closely to your characterization of Mormonism as Arianist because LDS doctrine does not consider Christ to be both holy God and holy man. The reason he goes on to make different points is because he was trying to say to me that they are not as Arianist as some people might think because, after all, they do believe that Jesus demonstrated certain divine attributes, Okay, but as long as you're still saying that Jesus is not God, then you are fully Arianist, even if you think that he did some divine things. You know, that would be, and again, I say this respectfully, but just uh, as a point of illustration, it would be like saying that Abraham Lincoln was not really president, uh, but he did some very presidential things. Uh, You know, he was not really president, but he did give a great speech in Gettysburg, and he was very instrumental in the cause of liberty for the slaves, and he helped keep the United States united during a civil war, but he did all that, but he wasn't really president, okay? And we might find points, we will find points with other religions as to, uh, and, and of agreement. We will find certain points of agreement among other religions. As to some of the things that Jesus said and some of the things that Jesus did. 
But you cannot have multiple views about who Jesus is. That's the difference. Because the whole doctrine of salvation and our forgiveness of sins hinges on a true understanding of who Jesus is. Which obviously is a tad more serious than a misunderstanding about who Abraham Lincoln is, okay? You might be historically wrong about Abraham Lincoln, but it didn't really change anything. If you get the identity of Jesus wrong, it changes everything in terms of your personal salvation. You must understand who Jesus is. And I got to be honest with you, and again, I say this respectfully. I would rather understand who Jesus is from the pen of a first century eyewitness like John, okay, who lived with Jesus, ministered with Jesus, uh, ate with Jesus, listened to the teachings of Jesus, understood Jesus, even died for the cause of Jesus as a martyr, than to take information about who Jesus is from Joseph Smith and supposed golden tablets that he discovered in the 1800s in Palmyra, New York. Is anybody listening to me? Okay. And, and I say that again respectfully, but the truth is there are a variety of ideas of who Jesus is. But I would rather take it from the pen of a personal eyewitness in the first century than the revelations of Joseph Smith, the revelations of Muhammad, uh, the information from the Watchtower, uh, the Simpsons, or the Discovery Channel. Okay? All right. So this is the Gospel of John. This is why it is essential. Most of the times when somebody gets, uh, becomes new to the faith and they become you know, born again and they become followers of Jesus, uh, a lot of times we will point people to the Gospel of John. Like start in the Gospel of John. Uh, not only because it helps you to later understand all the death in the Old Testament, okay, but when you put things in perspective, but because it introduces you to who Jesus really is. And so that's why this first chapter of John is, is paramount. It's fundamentally important. He, he does a comprehensive explanation here of who Jesus is. We're going to look at just five, uh, and we only have like five minutes left, so i got to race through this. Verse 1, look at your Bibles. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Three things right there from, from verse 1. John starts by saying, in the beginning. And John goes back further than all the other uh, gospel writers before him. Matthew goes back in the genealogy of Jesus to Abraham, okay? Because Matthew's appealing largely to a Jewish audience. Mark doesn't even talk about the genealogy of Jesus Christ. He just launches right into the ministry of Jesus at the time that he was baptized as an adult by John the Baptist. Luke, in, in his epistle, he goes back to the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam. And he, as a Gentile, Luke, is primarily appealing to a Gentile audience as well. But John goes back even further. John goes back in the beginning. Now, Jewish ears would have perked up because they're like, well, that's the way the whole Bible starts, right? Genesis 1.1. John brilliantly links John 1.1 with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning. Okay, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. And so John's like, in the beginning was the Word. Okay, wait, these things are related here, aren't they? Of course, that's, that's the point he's trying to make here. Now, when he says, in the beginning, he's doing that for our benefit, because God is outside of time and space. But God has, 
given us the measurement of time for our sake so that we can understand what John is saying here is that Jesus pre-existed before coming to earth. So it's the first point when we talk about the identity and the deity of Jesus. Number one, Jesus is eternal. He wasn't just created by God the Father and then suddenly just shows up here on earth. He pre-existed with God the Father, being co-equal, co-eternal with God. And Jesus even says as much about himself. Later on in John's Gospel, chapter 17, verse 5, when Jesus is praying, he says, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Before the world was. It's John 17, 5. So Jesus is eternal. That's the first thing to understand. Number two, Jesus is the Word of God. Right here in the first verse, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He uses the word word three times in verse 1. And he taps into a Greek word, because, again, the New Testament was originally written in Greek. He taps into a Greek word that now his Gentile, Greek-speaking world would have understood, okay? In the beginning, appealed more to Jewish ears. But when he uses this term for the word word, it is the Greek word logos, L-O-G-O-S. And a Greek-speaking culture had a a tremendous understanding of the word logos. Now, that word, I will tell you, is multifaceted in its definition. Logos can mean word, speech, thought, or principle. So it was used in a multifaceted way, but in Greek philosophy, the word logos also meant divine reason. Divine reason. Greek philosophy said, basically to summarize this aspect, is that everything that exists pre-existed. That's logos. In other words, you know, when you look at the pulpit here, the the idea is in Greek philosophy that this pulpit actually pre-existed. Why? Because somebody had the thought of designing it before it actually materialized. That's logos. It's a thought, it's a concept that ends up becoming expressed. So when John says that Jesus is the word, is the logos, what he's saying is Jesus is the divine expression of God. That Jesus has pre-existed, has always been, but was made manifest in these days. That Jesus becomes the manifestation of God himself. So that word to us may not make as much impact as it certainly did in the first century. But logos is, is a, is, means the divine expression of something and Jesus is that divine expression of God. He is the word of God. Now, that term word of God is also used to describe the Bible itself. Uh, in fact, in the Bible, in Romans ten seventeen, it says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So that term is also used about the Bible as well as it is used about Jesus himself. In fact, in Revelation 19, it says that that's how Jesus will be referred to in the future. Revelation 19:13 says that he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. So, how is it that Jesus is called the Word of God and so is the Bible? Here's how. 
Because the Bible is the revelation of God transcribed. Jesus is the revelation of God personified. So both bear that name, the Word of God. The Bible is God's revelation transcribed. Jesus is God's revelation personified. So both are referred to as the Word of God. And then John takes that idea and he drives the stake in even further in verse 1 when he says, In the beginning was the Word, the divine expression of God, and the Word was with God. Listen, and the Word was God. It's number three, and this touches on the point I opened up with. See, Mormons... And Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Muslims, do not believe that Jesus is God. Uh, Mormons believe that uh, Jesus, as I mentioned, is a created being. Um, They classify him as the spirit brother of Lucifer. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is the archangel Michael. Um, Muslims believe that Jesus is a, a, uh, a good prophet, inferior to Muhammad, okay, so you have to start to ask yourself, you know, who Jesus is because we can't all be right. Again, I would rather take the revelation of a first century eyewitness than anyone else's. And so when you look at what John is saying here, he wants us to understand that before time as we know it began, Jesus was with God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. But he says, But even more than that, Jesus is God, and the Word was God. Now, John uses the word was three times in the first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, uh, was with God, and the Word was God. And the word was in our English language is past tense. But in the Greek that John is writing in, he's actually writing the Greek word aimi. It's a form of the verb to be. And in the tense he's writing in, it's the imperfect indicative active tense. What does that mean, Pastor G? What it means is continuous action. So literally, verse 1 could be read, in the beginning was and is the Word, and the Word was and is with God, and the Word was and is and will always be God. That's how this reads literally. This is why Jesus in John 10.30 said, uh, I and the Father are one, one in essence and nature. In John 14, 9, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In Hebrews 1, 3, it says, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. ESV says the imprint of God's nature. That's who God, that's who Jesus is. Now, this this does like stir up this confusion, though, in our hearts, doesn't it? Because the concept of the Trinity, which teaches basically that God is one God who reveals himself in three persons or three personalities. It's very hard for the human mind to grasp. You know, so here I am talking about how Jesus is with God, but Jesus is God. Like, how does that work? And when you look at the account of Jesus in the Bible, there are times that Jesus prays to the Father. Well, is he praying to himself? And like, how does all that work? And I will be honest with you, there is difficulty in understanding the concept and the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is one single God who reveals himself in three persons or three personalities, not separate, distinct, created beings, one God. So the best example I can give of this, and no human illustration will really, will really help us to understand completely, but the best illustration to how we understand God is one God reveals himself in three persons 
is to use the example of light. Now, it's interesting that you may have noticed as I read the first few verses of John chapter 1, John used the word light seven times to describe Jesus. The first time in verse 4, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Uh, Jesus even uses the word about himself in John 8, 12. A little bit later in John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So, using light as an illustration, if you take a beam of light, white light, and you pass it through a prism, it will refract into three primary colors. It's the same light, but it displays itself in three primary colors when it is passed through a prism. So God is one God, singular God, revealed in three persons or personalities. And that's the closest I can come to to helping any of us understand. You know, there are some things that are mysteries, and that's okay. J.B. Phillips said that if God were small enough for me to figure out, he wouldn't be big enough for me to worship. So there are some things that we just defer to God and say, God, I don't, under, I don't understand this, the mystery of it all, the uh, magnificence of it all. There are just some things this side of heaven we won't completely grasp, and that's okay. That's called faith, and you, and you trust God. But this is how God reveals himself here in the pages of the Bible. Real quickly, the last two points. Notice verse 3 in your Bibles. It says, all things were made through him. Through whom? Through Jesus. And without him, nothing was made that was made. He emphasizes it again in verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. So number four for you note takers, Jesus is creator. This verse tells us here that the part of the Godhead responsible for creation was Jesus. You have God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, God the Holy Spirit. It might be fair to say that God the Father was the architect of the universe, but Jesus the Son was actually the creator of the universe. And Colossians 1, 15 to 17 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Listen, this is Colossians 1, the next verse, 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Do you realize that the, 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 the reason our universe is still held together is because the creator, Jesus, is holding everything together. He is the glue. So, you know, he's, he's spinning the earth, like, you know, rotating on its axis, but he's just, he's just, he's got complete control over everything so that the ocean tides don't rush beyond their borders and so that we don't burn to a crisp because we're just the right distance from the sun and, and all of this, okay? But there's coming a day, the Bible says, when this heaven and this earth will pass away, God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth, a home for all believers. So in the meantime, this is what Jesus is doing. He's like, I'm holding everything together. But one day is going to come where Jesus is like, okay, you know, and like, like it's all going to spin out of control because there's a new heaven and a new earth. Okay, last point, number five. Jesus became human to dwell among us and die for us. This is found in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
few verses later in verse 17, John will identify who he's been talking about by name, Jesus Christ. But here in verse 14, he says, at one point, God becomes flesh and walks this earth, and his name is Jesus. Now again, writing in first century Greek, when when John writes there, and the word became flesh, became flesh is the Greek word skenu. And it literally means to tabernacle or to pitch a tent. Now, he's using language that was similar to the Old Testament in this sense. Before there was a permanent temple, there was a mobile tabernacle. God gave the design to Moses. It was like a big tent that they would uh, take down and then they would pitch it again whenever they would move through the wilderness wanderings. And it was the place of the worship of God until the the temple itself was built in Jerusalem. So the idea of the tabernacle where God would dwell among the people is the same concept that that, that John is using here about Jesus. Jesus tabernacled because God came to dwell among us. And he came to dwell among us for the purpose of dying for us. Why did he have to do that? Because all of us have sinned. There's none righteous, no, not one. We all fall short of the perfect standard of God. God, because of his love for us, wanted to redeem us, to rescue us. He determined that if there was one righteous person among us, he would put all the penalty and all of the consequences for all of our sin on that one human being, and that one human being could, so to speak, take one for the team, for the whole human race, okay? But the Bible says that when God surveyed the landscape of humanity, he found none righteous, not one. And so the Bible says that God's own arm worked salvation for him. And he determined then he himself would come to earth. This miraculous conception, the Holy Spirit comes upon Mary, this virgin. The seed of God implanted in her womb. Divinity met humanity. And both merged into Jesus being fully God, fully man. Born now, lived a sinless life, and he became that atoning sacrifice so that by his death on the cross, if we put our faith in what Jesus did, we can have our sins forgiven and be saved. Is anybody happy about this news? Amen. But look, this is, this is the great exchange. Okay? This is the great exchange. Jesus' sinless life for our sinful lives. Jesus died so we might live. He was condemned so we might be forgiven. And God did it all to save us, to rescue us. This is why John says his purpose in writing all this, John chapter 20, verse 31, these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the revelation of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, for every Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, Muslim, for every atheist or agnostic, for people who don't understand who Jesus is, that you would open the eyes of their hearts, that they would see and know who Jesus is. In knowing Jesus and receiving him as Lord and Savior by faith, 
we can have our sins forgiven. We can have the assurance of heaven when we die. I pray that, Lord, for every unbeliever. Everyone who might hear this Bible study, Lord, open the eyes of their heart that they would accept Jesus. God in flesh who came to die for the sins of the world. That by believing in Him, that He is the Christ, the Son of God, we might have life in His name. Thank you, Lord, for that promise. We love you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen.